0: Welcome back to Over the Top, a great war podcast. All right, folks, how was everyone doing? This is going to be episode 33 and part two of the Italian Front for 1915. On the last episode, part one, I introduced the Italian Front, how Italy was pushed into the war and why they chose the side of the Allies, the missed opportunity due to poor intelligence and an army that wasn't exactly prepared. This episode will focus on the first battle of the Isonzo and Italy isn't the only focus on this front. Let's not forget the sacrifice the Austrians made from the books I've read about the Italian front. I've shockingly, if that's a word, formed an opinion about Italy entering the war. Even though they were a rather newly unified nation, they were divided politically, much like other nations of that time. There were socialists and non-socialists. Half of the people yearned for the war and the other half believed nothing good could come from it. If you think about it, today's politics mirror the past. But it's always the same verdict. No matter what the people want, it's always a small group of politicians that will have the final decision based off their wants and needs and not so much what's best for the nation as a whole. Italy just happened to be in a very bad location, or happened, happens to be in a very bad location for the time of the war. The Habsburg Empire to the north, the Balkans to the east, France to the northwest, and the Dardanelles and the Ottoman Empire to the southeast, I mean, they're almost surrounded by the war. The question, could they really have stayed out of it, has been asked by many historians, and the probable answer would be no, it wouldn't have been possible. Nonetheless, they committed themselves on the side of the Allies. They believed they had more to gain from that side. Italy was just another nation pulled into this war from a group of politicians. The soldiers and their families, like the other nations, will be the ones to ultimately pay the price. And that's going to take us into the lead-up and the first battle of the Asanzo. But... Before I get into that, let me go over a few admin notes. The last episode took a lot longer than normal to get out. And as I said on a previous episode, I'm trying to balance out my work life, personal life, and most important school. I mean, the good thing is I'm already at the halfway point for school being done for the semester. So I mean, that's good for the show. Also on the last episode, I ended up drinking a glass of 19 Crimes Cali Red blend with Snoop Dogg on it because the Italian bottle just didn't work out. Surprisingly, it was a really good wine. 19 Crimes does have a cool app that when you point your cell phone camera at the criminal on the bottle, the criminal will come to life through your phone and tell you about the crime that they were convicted for, in which most cases was a prohibition crime, I believe. But on this episode... I was able to get an Italian bottle finally, and I got a excuse. I'm gonna butcher this. Vecchi Rosso di Montepulciano. Um, no idea what kind of wine it is or what kind of grape. So let's just go in for this. Let me get myself a glass. Yeah, it's yeah. Wife's wife's not here right now. Let's keep it going. All right, let's see how this is. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's my jam. That is good. It's a 2018. Wow, that's good wine. I'll tell you what, Italy, man. I thought France does the best wines, but Italy, ooh, they are remember making some wines. That's good. Yeah, okay. All right. That's it for this show's notes, there's a lot to cover, so let me get this thing started. As discussed on the last episode, the Italian and the Austrians had Alpine soldiers who were on the move to secure some of the highest mountain ranges that lay on the border of then the Habsburg Empire. There were some serious Alps along this border, like the Carnian and the Julian Alps and the Dolomites. Now, again, these were highly skilled mountaineering men with some serious courage. I mean, these guys had big brass balls. Excuse my language, but they were tough. You had to be tough and you had to be very physically fit to endure the elements of these mountain ranges. These weren't the guys that threw themselves on the floor if somebody accidentally put real milk instead of some soy, almond, hemp, vegan, uh, bocachino milk in their coffee. No. These guys probably just chewed on coffee beans and milked a mountain goat just to wash it down. (laughs) Obviously, I'm being dramatic, but I'm trying to get the point across that these alpinists on both sides were tough as nails. My days in the military, I really wanted to attend the mountaineering course, which is ran by the Marine Corps. It's uh, in two phases, a winter and a summer phase. I really wanted that school. Well, this didn't happen for me. In fact, I only know three people, that's right, three people, who actually went to the school from the Army and completed both winter and summer phases of the Marine Corps Mountaineering School. This was not an easy school to get back in the day for an Army guy. I'm not sure how it is today. In fact, if there's any listeners who've completed any phase of the course, I would love to hear about it. But my point is, for this front, These Alpine soldiers were very skilled and tough, but not every soldier was an Alpinist and not all of the front was in the higher mountain ranges. Many of the soldiers were just regular guys pulled from the towns and were made into soldiers literally overnight. Nothing new hearing about this in the great war and some of the front sat at lower ranges like parts of the Carso and the Southern sector of the Isonzo. In a sense, Even though this is one front, it kind of was like two fronts with the different styles of terrain. At the southern sector, the Italian soldiers crossed the River Isanzo on the 5th of June, heading for Montfalcone, a city today that lies on the Gulf of Trieste almost sitting on the border of now Slovenia. The soldiers had this big dream of marching into the city and victoriously defeating the Austrians. But this was all just a dream. A few days later, when they came upon the Carso, not only did they receive a warm welcome from the Austrian artillery and gunfire, once they came upon the rocky hillside, they were also greeted by nice, chilly gusts of wind, giving them the rude awakening what type of weather this region was capable of producing. The Carso's terrain is unique and brutal for the men fighting there. Definitely not made for trench warfare. It's the limestone region northeast of Trieste Bay. It's pronounced Karso in Italian, Karst in German, and Kras in Slovenian. The geological features of the Carso look stunning. Truly a natural wonder of formed rocks and jagged edges, but not to fight a warren. There's a legend about the Carso, and it goes when god had created the completion of the world he noticed that there were too many stones scattered here and there he then appointed an angel to pick them up and throw them into the sea the angel took a lot and began collecting and when the bag was full the angel flew into the direction of the ocean as the angel was approaching flying over this beautiful landscape the devil who was residing there had spotted him carrying the bag curious to see what was inside The devil cut the bag, releasing all the stones that fell on the land below. The land was condemned by God to remain a barren stony landscape to punish the inhabitants who had allowed the devil to take shelter there. And that's the legend of how the Carso came to be. A tad bit dramatic, but a good story nonetheless. I see the landscape as being a beautiful natural wonder of the world. The Carso's highest point only reaches 500 meters. That's 1,640 feet. That's not that tall. However, it's not the height of the Carso that made it brutal. It was the sharp, uneven, rocky terrain formed millions of years ago from limestone, dolomite, and gypsum that made it treacherous. It also contains countless numbers of sinkholes where water drained into the stone. The climate at the Carso is harsh. In the winter, it gets pounded by chilly, violent gusts of wind that often reach 100 knots, The rain turns the red clay into sticky mud, and the summer turns the area into desert-like conditions. Again, I'm sure it's a wonderful place to visit and hike around in peaceful conditions, but not a place to host a war. Now, how did artillery behave itself at the Carso? Horrible, of course. When a shell hit the rocky terrain and exploded, not only did it throw off fragmentations of metal, it also fired off bits and pieces of the rock almost like an exploding volcano. Soldiers often were not killed or mutilated by the metal pieces from the shells at the Carso, but often by the bits and pieces of the limestone. The explosion would create these sharp pieces that were pretty much like jagged bullets. They would rip and tear through the flesh and even blow through the skull if a soldier was close enough to the explosion. The thing about bullets, The faster they move with the higher rate of, what is it, procession, the greater chances it has to go clean through the body. Of course, depending on what the actual bullet core is made from and how much and type of powder being used in the casing. Also, what location of the body being hit. All this plays a factor in how a bullet performs, but going clean through can happen. Obviously, we're talking about some serious high-grade ammunition. When the AK-47 was being used in Vietnam, it would cause these mutilating wounds when the bullet hit, and that's because the round would begin to tumble in the air. So think of these rocks after the artillery shells explode being like that AK round. They're traveling at a high rate of speed, they're sharp and jagged, and are tumbling through the air, causing very grotesque wounds and kills. And for the soldiers on both sides, digging trenches was nearly impossible at first. They would have to drill into the stones, which wasn't going to happen since each side was firing at each other at this time. So they had a result with creating low walls with rocks that would easily be destroyed with a hit from a shell. This was a very bad situation if you were on the receiving end of artillery. On June 9th, the fighting at the castle really started to kick off when the Italians began their attack to capture Monfalcone. The town sat at the Adriatic Sea and was actually a booming city around that time when the war broke out. It was the biggest town between Gorizia and Trieste. The Italian Messina Brigade had charged the town head on while the Sardinian Grenadiers circled around the rear. The objective was to take the rock, or the rocca in Italian. This is where the Austrians would be the most heavily defended in the city. And that's because the Roca was a tiny fortress that stood on a hilltop over 70 meters high, which gave a good look out to the plains of Friuli and the Gulf of Trieste. By the way, this isn't the first battle of the Asanzo yet. This is just the fighting leading up to it. You've probably noticed by now that nearly in all these battles so far on the all fronts, it's always the high ground the armies fight to overtake. It's like King of the Hill. The fight for the Roca on June 9th was a quick battle. The Austrians pulled back to a hill called Kosich, which stood at 112 meters. But here's the problem. Even after pulling back, they still held the higher ground and they have artillery set up there. At dawn on the next day, after pulling back from the Roca, the Habsburgs began a Full artillery bombardment and the saddest part about this is the Italians also had artillery and they used it but they didn't use it well they were fracking the hell out of their own soldiers it was confirmed that over a hundred grenadiers were killed by friendly fire the Italians had not yet learned the importance of coordinating their fire with the infantry advancing naturally this was demoralizing to the soldiers and the Italian advancement was halted. The artillery bombardment continued on for a couple days. Over 300 Italians had been killed at Mont Falcone. And now the woods surrounding the city had combusted into a massive fire. It looked like the end of days and the war had just begun for the Italians. And I'm thinking about that situation. They basically had a forest fire surrounding their position. They weren't firefighters trying to put out the blaze. All they could do was just watch and wait for the fire to burn through all the fuel and die out. But the radiant heat must have been brutal. After a few days, finally the fire burned out and there was nothing but char and ash that covered the ground and black smoke that covered the men's face. And that's when the rain came in, turning the ground into an ashy mud pit. This was the situation at Mont Falcone by mid-June. As Montfalcon was being assaulted on June 9th, the second army made its first attack on the hill of Patgora, west of Gorizia. The army crossed the river below San Michel with little resistance, but made no gains. Also on this day, the Italians and the Austrians duked it out at Sogrado, a town west of Gorizia. Here, brutal fighting took place, A battle of the Pisa Brigade had crossed the river by pontoon. The Italians yelled, Savoy! As they charged forward, but were met by devastating fire from the Austrians. The pontoon had been destroyed, and the battalion was pinned down with no supplies or extra ammunition. They fell back to the river, fighting desperately with everything they had. When they ran out of bullets, they fixed bayonets. This is also when the Italians got introduced to the hand grenade. They had never seen this type of weapon before out of ammo, stuck at the wrong side of the river, getting rained down by bullets and artillery. And now the Habsburgs started lob grenades at them. Talk about kicking a man when he's down. All the remaining men could do was jump in the river and swim for the other end. Needless to say, some men didn't make it to the full distance. Little survived that fight. 500 Italians were killed. Decades later, some of the veterans opened up about the war. One Italian later recalled that every time they made a move, the Austrians seemed to know their exact position. Although no gains were really made at this time, fierce fighting was taking place and many men were dying on both sides. An Italian veteran who had been fighting at the higher ground at Hill 383 wrote the following. It was like the end of the world, and you would have thought a volcano was erupting. Down below, the Sanzo was boiling. I was wondering how a humble infantryman could come out of this inferno alive. We were going up all the time, under an avalanche of fire. I was praying all the time. There were already big holes in our line. Now, there was another strategic site for the Italians to take. And that was a mountain called Rambon, which stood at 2,000 meters. That's something like 6,500 feet. That's a good-sized mountain. It laid at the northern end of the Asanzo. Below it sat a town called Flitsch. That's what it's called in German. The Italians called it Plezzo. And today, because it's in Slovenia, it's called Bovec. Well, the frustrating part for the Italian side is that by early June, They actually controlled the sector leading into Flitch. General Cadorna gave the orders for the men to take the town because this would be a strategic point leading into Rambon. But of course, his orders were ignored, which gave the Austrians a chance to fortify their defensive positions around Flitch. This is where Cadorna really failed the first month of the war. He failed to motivate his officers to fight. I would say his officers failed him, but ultimately, he was responsible for their actions. That's what happens when you're at the top. Now, admittingly, I don't know too much about Cadorna yet. I will get to know him as I learn more about the Italian front, but I do know what leadership is. I've seen both bad and good in the military and the civilian world. I'm going to veer off the path a bit to go down a quick rabbit hole. Recently, I was listening to to a podcast by Jocko Willick, and he was talking about leadership in the military, and he was explaining the bad leadership that he experienced, and it was always the cause of egotism. He hit the nail on the head with what he was saying, because I've seen this firsthand. Fortunately, in the military, I dealt with more good leadership than bad between both officers and NCOs. In fact, I experienced some of the greatest leadership I've ever seen in my life so far in the army. Some natural born leaders that have done amazing things for the United States military. Then I've dealt with some officers that were just crap. And there's a reason for that. And I've never viewed myself as a leader. So I'm not saying that I ever was. In fact, aside from being the leader of my immediate family, the alpha male, I think I'm part of the tribe and not the chief in our society. If I can explain that, you know, I I view myself as an introvert. And if you think you're an introvert, but you're a natural born leader, that's impossible. Introverts are not leaders. I mean, to be a natural born leader, you have to be an extrovert. You have to be willing to go into crowds and just start moving around, talking to people, That's what a natural leader does. See, a lot of people can't accept that they're not born to be the chief. I'm a big believer that men are not created equal. Many men have to work harder than others to become something. We're not created with the same genes, body types, color, athleticism, and many other things, including the leadership gene. But when it comes to leadership, some people are just naturally born with it. You can see it in their aura they put off. We've all grown up with a couple people in our lives where we just know they're going to be some kind of leader in whatever they choose to do in life. When I got into the civilian world at my last job, I experienced some of the worst leadership imaginable. There was a few good ones, but there was a lot of bad. The reason for bad leadership usually is the result of egotism. I've seen it. They don't have the ability to listen to other people's ideas or thoughts. The world is centered around them. And the cause of bad leadership today is the same reason for the bad leadership during the great war. Egotism and sociopaths are closely related. Joseph Joffre was an egotistical ass which led to most of his failures. I can't come to this conclusion yet for Cadorna. It's too early for me to say, but many historians have regarded him as the worst military general of this conflict. Again, it's a little early for me to jump onto that verdict, but everything so far leading up to and through the first battle of the Asanzo supports that statement. When the Italians first mobilized and moved out, they came to the towns that were practically abandoned by the Habsburg military. Why did they just sit on these towns? Why didn't they proceed forward? They lost that momentum. That was the first failure. Moving the discussion into the Lower Isanzo, on June 9th, the battalion from the Pisa brigade moved by pontoon across the river without the other side being secured, thus resulting in the men getting pinned down with over 500 killed. Then, Cadorna ordered the men to take the town of Flitch at the upper end of the Asanzo, and his senior officers basically just gave him the bird and ignored the orders. So, talking about the Italian leadership at the time, yes, those officers probably, well, I should probably ask this, why did they ignore Cadorna? Again, ultimately, when you're at the top, all the responsibility lays on your shoulders. That's why you're at the top. Cadorna not being able to even command his senior officers was a massive problem. And in my opinion, he's absolutely to be blamed for this. But we'll learn more about Luigi Cadorna as we go. By mid-June, politically, things were becoming messy back home. Cadorna was providing Salandra with updates from the front. Salandra was under pressure from politicians who were in much favor of the war to fight on and beat the enemy quick. Cadorna was telling Salandra to tell them the truth that this wasn't going to be quick. This was going to be a long, drawn-out war. Salandra never passed that message along. For the Italian troops, by mid-June, Things didn't get off to a good start. They honestly believed that when they were going into these towns like Mon Falcone, they were going to be welcomed with warm arms. They had built up this imagination like they were the knights in shining armor, when in reality, they were viewed as invaders. Citizens gave them the cold shoulder, cold looks, even closed their shutters on them, making a statement that they were not welcome. This, along with the death count, just wasn't sitting too nice. You have to remember, though, a good chunk of these civilians weren't Italian. So why the hell would they welcome them with open arms? Well, the second week of June, the fighting died down enough for the men on both sides to begin digging in. They began breaking away limestone to create trenches and gun emplacements. In the higher mountain ranges... They also needed to create paths for mules for supply lines, which they did, along with connecting thousands of meters of telephone wire and cableways suspended in the air. These cableways can still be found in the mountains today. By the third week of June, Cadorna was ready to start the fight again. There was now over a million men suited up for battle. This was the biggest force Italy had ever assembled. Cadorna issued orders for the men to march towards Trieste and Gorizia. The first battle of the Isonzo was about to begin. Something to keep in mind, the Italians had given the Austrians ample time to prepare their defensive positions also, meaning they were ready for Cadorna's men. The battle had a couple objectives for the Italians. First, the second army was to take the summit of Mount Mersli while creating an opening at the Plava bridgehead, which would strengthen their position around Gorizia. The third army was to push forward on the Carso between Sagrado and Montfalcon. On June 24th, the second army made eight separate attempts to take kill 383 at Plava. Each attempt failed, and when push came to shove, it came to a halt. The second army was no match for the well-defended Austrian positions, They claimed it was due to the lack of firepower. And this is partially true. The Austrians did possess better firepower, but what really made the difference was the fact that the Italians gave them time to dig in and entrench themselves, creating a well-fortified defensive position. Bottom line, that was the game changer. On the 1st of July, the push for Mount Mersley began two days of artillery bombardments and infantry attacks, and yet still nothing was gained. At Mount Mersley, the spring had just dropped some of the heaviest rain he had seen in for quite some time, and the terrain along the mountain became just a muddy, wet slip and slide. In some cases, soldiers were on their hands and knees crawling just to keep a better grip. All of this, while the well-emplaced Austrian guns just mowed soldiers down burst after burst they dropped multiple soldiers at a time and another big problem was the barbed wire some would make it to the Austrian line call it luck but when they made it the barbed wire stopped them to, to a halt and they were left in the open on the 6th of July They did attempt to use gelignite tubes at Podgora. Gelignite is a high explosive gel made from nitroglycerin and nitrocellulose and a base of wood pulp and potassium nitrate. It was invented by Alfred Noble in 1875. It's used a lot in rock blasting for mining or demolition. But they had failed to blast through. Austrian machine gun fire was too heavy for them and they couldn't even get to the wire. The only place that the Italians made any sort of advancement was at the Carso at Mount San Michele and Mount Sebusi. Artillery began on June 23rd near Sagrado, driving the Austrians back. But the Habsburgs didn't throw in their cards and fold because this sector was a strategic point. Mount San Michele being the most important, they had to defend this at all costs. It formed an Austrian salient, protecting Gorizia and the the Paco Valley along with the Carso. If this was lost, the Austrian defenses at the southern part of the Isonzo would begin to crumble. On July 1st, the Italians made their advancement towards San Michele at Hill 142. It began at 0600 hours with a thunderous storm that kicked it off. Not an artillery thunderstorm, but an actual Mother Nature thunderstorm. The men waited until the clouds dispersed, and by noon, they were again yelling, Savoy! Problem is, the men and their equipment were drenched, still soaking wet. They're attacking a hill, and they're also carrying 35 kilograms of equipment and provisions in their knapsacks. That's roughly around 77 pounds. This is a lot for those guys. They couldn't make it up the hill fast enough, which just presented the Habsburgs with a slow moving target for their guns. The Habsburg soldiers laid down a devastating wall of bullets. The Italian soldiers were crawling on their hands and knees because there wasn't much cover for them. The attack at noon failed. They would try again a couple hours later and would again fail. Then the rain came back. Now. For the next few days, the Italians would continue their attacks and each one failing, but they were improving as they were inching their way forward, taking less casualties as they were moving along. They were improving so much that on July 4th, the Austrian commander at the Carso reported to the higher-ups that his position was in a desperate state of being overran. The last of the Italian reserves were brought to the line and posed a major threat. However, they were still being held off by the guns. The Italian commander of the Third Army requested more reserves from Cadorna, but Cadorna failed to commit on this day. Instead, the reserves arrived on the fifth, but by this time the Austrians got the desperate situation under control. Things were looking bad, then the next day it was back to normal, like the snap of a finger. Funny how that happens. Down at the southern sector of the Asanzo at Mont Falcone, the Italians weren't doing too good. The attacks at Hills 85 and 121 had failed badly, costing many lives. One Italian veteran recalls being pinned down at the Roca. Aside from soldiers dying around him, he specifically remembers the horrible smell of defecation. He explained that the men were just going to the bathroom where they lied, and that was next to one another. They weren't about to risk getting up to find a place off in the distance to have a movement. Then, when the rain began, it churned up the red soil and mixed in with the human waste. The man felt like this was the end of times as he laid down to try and sleep. The smell, the noise, the dead, he felt as if he was sinking into the abyss. The first battle of the Asanzo ended on July 7th, and we can see nothing was gained and a lot of opportunities were lost leading up to it. The last veteran of the first battle lived until 2005 in Rome, passing away a month after his 110th birthday. Carlo Orelli was born in December of 1894 and was conscripted on May 24th, 1915, then sent off to the Carso. This is detailed in Mark Thompson's book, The White War, when he went to visit Carlo. Thompson said, nearly 90 years later, Carlo sat in sharp sunlight beside the open shutters of his bedroom window and would kind of drift in and out. Carlo spoke about first leaving on the train for the front from Naples. He said, it was a lovely day. I remember it well, a great blue sky We thought we were going to the front to take Trento and Trieste, which were under Austria. We had gone to war to conquer those territories, which were Italian. Then we would go forward. We expected a short war, not one that would last so many years. Morelli then spoke to Thompson about the difference in firepower at the Asanzo, saying, You cannot have any idea what an Austrian 420mm howitzer sounds like. Quite different from what you would expect. It's not like in a film. It was too far off to make a boom. It was more of a rumble, a distant roar. Then a whistling that grew louder and louder the closer it came. Then we knew the shell was about to hit. It did not always explode at once. Sometimes it didn't explode at all. That's the lottery of death, end quote. This was true. The Austrians were better equipped for this battle than the Italians. The Habsburgs were firing 420s and 305s while the Italians were firing 149s. And don't get me wrong, if you were hit with a 149, that's probably still gonna be the end game for you unless you're lucky or have some guardian angel watching your back. But the bigger guns obviously did have more range and power and fighting in terrain around the Italian front, range mattered. Thompson then asked Carlo an interesting question. He asked if he hated the enemy. Carlo's response was, No, no, no. They were under orders, just as we were. War is war. If you try to kill me, I'll try to kill you. But there was no hatred. When we took prisoners, they were sent to work the land in Italy for the rest of the war. There was no mistreatment it was the same with italians taken prisoner the austrians who had everything offered our men fine food because they knew we had nothing we asked them to taste it first in case it was poison but it was all good stuff end quote carlos stressed to the author that it was a war without hatred not like nowadays with all this he paused there's war everywhere now. Carlo Orelli was lightly wounded during the first battle, and during the second battle was badly wounded by shrapnel. He was evac from the front in September of 1915, never to return. And I'm going to start wrapping this episode up right here. Folks, I highly recommend Mark Thompson's book, The White War. It's been my book of choice on the Italian front. A fantastic read, and there's just... As usual, there's so much more to the book than what I'm putting out. Even the interview with Carlo, it's so fascinating this man lived until 110 years of age. And that's going to be this week's recommendation. A couple listeners have recommended some books, and I did purchase them, but I just haven't had a chance to dive into them yet. All right, folks, be safe. Thank you for the continued support for the show. You fans are the best. And until the next episode, take care, everyone.